Good morning. Um, it's always great to be back here at CBC, so thanks for the invitation um, on this kind of humid but otherwise uh, great July day. Let me pray for us as uh, we hear the word of the Lord a little bit more. Lord, we're grateful for the way that uh, you demonstrate your faithfulness to us, um, that you extend your patience to us. And so um, may we hear your word as an invitation to follow you, uh, to emulate you, and then uh, to offer um, your love, your mercy, uh, and your patience to the world around us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, answering the question, who are you, is often uh, quite telling. Right, so one way, if you ask me, uh, Greg, who are you? What's your story? I could tell you that um, I'm the child of immigrants who is a child of immigrants. My grandparents left China in the 1920s. Uh, they immigrated to the Philippines uh, in order to find jobs. Uh, my parents were raised there, and then they immigrated here in um, 1965, 64. Uh, my dad to do his residency, my mom to finish a master's degree in education at, in Buffalo and Rochester. Um, and I've often thought that at some point my family should just immigrate as well so that we could have three or four generations in a row of kind of rootless, culturalist history. Um, and that would be one way of describing who I am, right? And I think sometimes the stories that you choose to define who you are, to explain who you are when you're introducing yourself are quite telling. For example, here in the United States, um, when I say, tell me about yourself, the first thing that we describe after our name is often what job we have, right? Hi, my name is Greg. In my case, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I'm helping college students and faculty encounter Jesus uh, on campus. And you might start with whatever your occupation is, which is a uniquely American way of telling our story, right? Because nowhere else in the world, really, when you're asked to introduce yourself, do you explain what job you have? Right? You would explain, um, in, uh, if you're in uh, Latin America or Europe or Africa, you'd explain the village that you belong to or the province that you come from. You'd explain something about your family's origin story. Um, you might explain something about uh, the people that you belong to uh, because in those cultures, the location, the geography matters. But here in the United States, we start with job because our American story is often defined by what we do, um, where we work, and how we demonstrate that we're productive kind of people. In Colossians uh, 3, it's interesting what Paul does because he invites us to define our story differently. And it's a kind of circular way to get to the value of patience, which comes at the end of the passage. But I think when you understand the way Paul wants us to frame our story, you begin to understand patience in a new way. Because Paul is challenging us to define our lives around Jesus' story not our own story. Jesus' story is our story, according to Paul. And so if you're in Colossians, look again at chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And what I want you to pay particular attention to is how many times Paul says, with Christ, in the first four verses. How he identifies who we are with who Christ is. So this is Paul again, in Colossians 3, chapter 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and you're now and now sorry, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Um, 
think about the comprehensive way that Paul describes Jesus' experience and our experience together, right? According to Paul, we've been raised with Christ into new life, into this new covenant experience, um, we've, which implies that we died with Christ in his crucifixion. And Paul says, you have died. Um, we will be revealed with Christ, who is our life, with him in glory. And what, until that time occurs, we are hidden in Christ. We are hidden with Christ um, before God. Essentially, Paul um, scopes out the key aspects of Jesus' um, life on earth, right? Uh, Jesus died in our place and on our behalf. He rose again on the third day. He's now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And one day he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And Paul says, that story is your story. You died with Christ to the elementary powers of the world, he says in chapter 2, verse 20. So no longer do you need to win God's favor by being better or being nicer or doing more. In fact, not only have you died with Christ to the power of sin, which no longer holds you, you've now been raised with Christ in the resurrection. And the promise to us is that you are part of the new covenant. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work within you rewriting the wiring of your heart until one day you will look like Jesus. Right? Is what Paul reminds us in the epistles. The very power that um, brought Jesus back to life is bringing us to life in a new way. And even though we don't experience that fully right now, what we know is we are hidden with Christ before God. That in spite of our failing, in spite of our inability to be all that we desire to be, to live out the new covenant, to actually manifest the fruits of the Spirit in a consistent way, we are at the throne of God already, unashamed, unafraid, boldly approaching the Father because we are hidden with, it, with Christ. And we're waiting with Christ for his final revelation, that one day Christ will return, everybody will see him, and at that point the universe will sing out in praise of who Jesus is right. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so one day we will be revealed as fully who God intended us to be. Perfect, beautiful, so delightful that God will look at us and say, you bear a striking resemblance to my own son. Right? And that's what Paul says is the story of our life. If you are a follower of Jesus, you died with him to the power of sin and to the powers of evil. You've been raised with him and new life is flowing into you, transforming you. You're now hidden with Christ before the throne, unashamed, unafraid, boldly worshiping and approaching your father. And one day, the entire universe will know that that's your true identity. And until that time comes, we wait. And we experience and understand the patience of God. Right? The cross, if we died with Christ, we understand patience... Um, that God demonstrates because he's been patient with us uh, in judgment and extended mercy to us. If we've been raised with Christ, then we know um, that he's been patient and continues to be patient in the long, slow process of transformation in our life because we don't yet look like Christ. And the process isn't instantaneous. In fact, for many of us, it's slow. Um, and we're living in the time of God's patience, Paul tells us in Romans, right? Where God is choosing not to return in order to give more people an opportunity to turn to him and to wait. 
So if this is part of Paul's experience of this is who you are, right? How does it then begin to shape our understanding of this virtue of patience um, as one of the fruits of the Spirit? Well, Paul suggests that we need to do two primary things. The first is um, if we share Christ's life, then his story begins to actually shape our reality. And you'll notice him going to this in Colossians 3, uh, verses 1 and 2, right? Um, and he does it in two ways. He says, set your minds and hearts on the things that are above, in verse 1 um, and 2. Uh, set your, uh, sorry, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to set your mind and heart on something? For, for Paul and for the people of the time of the New Testament, this means um, setting your will, right, the decision-making aspects of your life, which is what they understood the heart to be. Um, it wasn't just the seed of emotions. It was actually your ability to make decisions and to think well was from your heart. So set your heart and your mind, the ways that you think, the things that you desire, the ways that you intend to be, in the plane where Christ already reigns. Allow Christ's actual reign and rule to shape your life um, and to shape your desires um, so that his values become your values, so that his concerns become your concerns, so that literally on a day-to-day -day basis you live out what we pray every time you pray the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come here on earth as it already is in heaven, right? May your will be done. And when you're praying that, what you're saying is, I want the world to more resemble heaven where you already reign and where it's obvious that you reign, where things go the way that you intend every single time. And so devote your entire um, personality uh, to accomplishing that here on the world. And if you do that in part, what Paul says is, you're going to reject the things below, the earthly things. Now, what we need to be clear about is Paul's not saying the everyday earthly things are the ordinary things of life, like job, like family, like appearance, like the house we have or the things that we own. Because earlier in Colossians, Paul's been very clear. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. He made it all. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. And one day they will return to him as an act of worship. And so Paul could not possibly be saying, you know, stop worrying so much about your job. Focus on heavenly things instead. Don't worry about the relationships you're in. Those are all going to pass away. Focus on worship, right? Don't think about your job or your yard. Those don't matter to God. In fact, what Paul would say is, that yard of yours, God made it for himself. It matters to him. He owns it. One day it will belong to him. Those relationships he embedded you in, those belong to him. He intended you to be in the places that you're at, with the neighbors that you have, with the family members that you're ensconced with, with the coworkers that you seem to be stuck with, right? All of those were intentional on his part. He made those people. They belong to him. Even the stuff that we wear, which is so he's like, ah, oh, that's just stuff. It's stuff that he made for his glory, for his purposes, for his delight. So steward it well, right? So Paul could not possibly be saying when he says, don't put your mind on earthly things that, to get us to think about just the stuff that we have. What instead Paul seems to be saying is um, reject those earthly forces that draw you away from God, Right? those earthly powers that actually contest God's rule over your life. Because there are a lot of other stories that could define our identity, aren't there? There are a lot of other ways to define who you are other than Christ's resurrection or death, resurrection, reign, and return. Um, think about uh, 
the common American story, right? I've worked hard, and therefore I should be able to play hard now. Um, I invest my time at work. I've achieved my retirement savings plan. I have ample income, so now is the time of my life where I should just be delighting and doing what I want. I deserve it. It's owed to me right now. I should be comfortable, right? It's the story if you ever go down to Midtown Manhattan, if you pay attention to any of the billboards, any of the advertisements, it's that story over and over and over. You've worked hard, so splurge. You've worked hard, so just pamper yourself a little bit more, right? Buy it. You deserve it. When my wife and I um, were engaged, we went to, a, we went to get uh, registered, right, for a wedding registry, and we went to Bed Bath & Beyond. And... They were you know, showing us how to register, what we need to do. They gave us that really cool little laser gun that you now use to zap items that you want. And um, they gave us a list of things that Bed Bath & Beyond would like us to consider as essentials for a newlywed. And we're just like, you're joking. Who, who uses these things? But what was interesting was um, the woman who was trying to help us, she said, mark down everything you want. You deserve it. Your friends want to give it to you. This is your day. And it took all of my self-control not to go, get behind us, Satan. <laughs> right? Because um, everything about that statement, other than our friends wanted to honor us, wasn't true. Right? It, we didn't deserve it all. This wasn't our day. This was our community's day to celebrate what God was doing together. And certainly, we didn't need all this stuff. If any of you have gotten married recently, you know like there are things that we were given that we still have not used 10 years into our marriage, and we pared that list down. And what actually I said to her, I didn't call her Satan, because that just seemed rude to somebody I hadn't met before. Um, Self-control is a fruit of spirit. Actually, what I said is, uh, we don't actually believe any of that's true. We don't deserve this, and we don't think of this as our special day. She is not a princess, and I'm not a prince. Um, but thank you for your help. We're going to go now and zap away. But it was an attempt to shape our life around a particular story. You deserve this. This is your special day. Do whatever you want. Ask for whatever you want. You need it all. Right? There's another entire set of stories that we can tell about ourselves. There's a story um, that's more like, um, I've never had it all and I never will. My life started when somebody slapped me on my butt and it's gotten down, gone downhill from there. Right? <laughs> Um, I've been in a bad family, I've been in bad schools, I've been in bad relationships, I'm in a bad situation right now, and it's all being done to me. There's no level playing field, I've never had a fair shot or a fair chance. Um, it's always been difficult. And you, we all know people, right, who define their life around that story instead, and how it completely shapes the trajectory of their life. Um, it's hard for us in our culture, I think, to figure out which story we should shape our life around. Because if you don't shape your life around the right story, you can't possibly manifest the fruits of the Spirit. It's hard to shape our life around the story because there are so many competing stories that we could be listening to that are insistent that we listen to them, right? Advertisers are continually telling us what to buy, how to live, and how to smell. Our doctors love telling us what to do. Politicians want to tell us how to vote. Professors love to tell us how to think. Parents tell us who to become. And friends tell us how to live. The noise is deafening and dizzying. All of them have a story that they would like us to embody with them. And the challenge for us constantly 
is to figure out how do we listen to Christ's story rather than all of these other stories so that the fruits of the Spirit then manifest in us. Right? That's why you'll find um, with almost numbing, monotonous reliability, the church keeps coming back to core disciplines. Right? It's why um, the church will always say, you need silence in your life. You need a quiet time. You need retreat days to get away. Because at some point, you have to silence all the other voices in the world and in your head and pay attention to the still, small voice of God who reminds you, this is who I am, and this is who you are, right? Not only do we need sense, we need solitude. You just need space away from people in order to reorder your values and reorder your life around those key truths about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. That's why we keep coming back to scripture, why obnoxiously and monotonously churches, in sermons and in Bible studies, in prayer meetings and in conversations with one another, we keep quoting scripture to each other. Why? Because in the end, we need to hear the God story repeated so frequently that it becomes embedded in our life and then begins to manifest in a way that really makes sense. I've thought about this for two reasons. Um, one is just... Um, the power of a community, because Paul was writing not to individuals, but to a community, right? When a community shapes their life around the story of God, it changes everything, and the fruits of the Spirit naturally begin to manifest. I think about um, what happened on October 2nd, 2006. I'm sure you all remember. Um, a shooting occurred at the West Nichols Mine School. Um, it was an Amish one-room schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, you might remember uh, Charles Ray Roberts IV um, stormed into the the schoolhouse um, sent all of the boys out, as well as the teacher, and kept um, 10 girls there. He tied their hands up and then just began systematically shooting them. Uh, five of the girls ages 6 through 13 died immediately. Um, the rest were profoundly injured. Um, it was as the, he started shooting <clears throat> that the police finally broke in, but it was too late. Now. This would be a horrifying and shocking story, and it is, except that it's so common now in the United States. What was really surprising, I think, about this story was how the Amish community responded. Right Now, if you know anything about the Amish community, they've chosen out of um, religious conviction to withdraw as much as possible from the modern world, to keep life simple, as simple as they can, in part because it's their way of trying to... Um, reduce the other stories that are being told in their life. And so you can imagine after a tragedy, right, where um, in a small Amish community where they're, they're all related um, at one point or another and they've lived together for generations, when you've had a shooting like that where 10 of the girls of your community between ages 6 and 13 uh, have been shot, five of whom died immediately on the scene, it'd be easy for that community to withdraw, to do what they've always done, right? to close ranks, shut the doors, gather together, hunker down, wait for the lights and the cameras to move on and resume their life. But what was surprising about the Amish community as this occurred was the way that Christ's story transformed the ways that they responded to it. Um, one of the Amish men, one of the Amish leaders of the community recounts um, as he stood in front of the schoolhouse, watching this get played out, as bodies are being brought out, he saw an older man just weeping and went over to him, and he realized that the man was the father of the gunman, because the gunman was um, from a neighboring community, and the Amish leader just said, I spent over an hour just holding that man as he sobbed. 
The wife of the gunman um, was a church-going woman. She and her friends had just prayed that morning for the safety of children in schools. Um, when she got a call from her husband saying, I'm about to do something terrible, and she began begging him on the phone, please, please just come home. Um, but he hung up on her, and it was only as she began to watch the news later that morning that she realized her husband was the one who had, um, had uh, started the shoot, or had been the shooter. Um, within a few hours, there was a door, uh, a knock at her door, and it was members of the Amish community who had come to her, including some of the parents of the girls who had been shot. Now, Amish people are a little intimidating and scary, even at the best of circumstances to people like me, but you can only imagine what it must have been like for that woman, knowing that your husband has just killed some of those children of this community to see stern-faced, sober-clothed Amish people at your doorstep. Um, but with great courage, she opened the door, and what they said to her was, we've come here to mourn with you, because while we have lost daughters uh, in this incident, you've lost a husband, and your children have lost a father, because the gunman had shot himself. Uh, at the end of the siege, and in an amazing way, began to offer her mercy, assured her of their love, and then actually brought food, and I believe they set up a scholarship fund for her children to ensure that they were provided for in their loss. And then they invited her and her family to join them at the funeral, not to increase her sense of guilt, but to give her a chance to mourn. And then many of them actually attended her husband's funeral, um, not to eulogize the man, but to tell their family, his family, we love you and we grieve with you in your loss, even as we grieve our own losses. What allows a community to do that? Right? It was fascinating to read the report, news reports at the time and then now to look back on them um, as, you, you know, as I've looked through the internet. CNN could make no sense of this. Right? Essentially, they just end up going, I don't know, it's those crazy Amish people. They live crazy, they continue to act crazy, we can't really explain it. But I want to suggest it's a religious community that shaped its life around Jesus' story. How do you go and hug the man whose son has killed your children? How do you show up in his household and tell his wife, we've suffered incredible loss, but we know you must be experiencing incredible loss right now. You've lost your husband. Your children are fatherless. How could we help you? I think it's because you realize if your life has been shaped by Jesus Christ's death, then forgiveness is always possible in the faith face of great sin, right? If you've been raised with Christ in his resurrection, then you know death shall not have dominion. Death is not the end of anybody's story. And that you can trust that God will actually one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know that when you're feeling weak and it's impossible to extend grace, that your life is now hidden with Christ before God. And if you can't do it, the least you can do is hold somebody and pray for them and bring them before the throne of God where you yourself dwell right now, right? And you can trust if one day Christ, Christ will return and demonstrate his reign and rule over the whole of the earth and that you will be, be revealed as a child of God at that same moment that one day every tear will be wiped away. All the injustices of the world will be cured. And that God will make everything new and as painful and as intolerable and as heartbreaking as this world is. And many of you have experienced that. The 80, 90 years that we may have been given by God in this world, as long as that is, is nothing compared to the eternity where he promises to make all things right. And you trust and you wait for that and you offer that hope to people. Right? That's what it's like when a community shapes its life around the story of Christ's death, resurrection, current reign with God, and his return. And that's what Paul, in a sense, 
and challenges this community and cautions to do. So shape your life around this story. And if you do this, he says, right, if you define your life around this story, then you're going to embrace the disciplines of community, <coughs> which demonstrate and witness to this. And we skipped over um, the intervening section from verse 5 to verse 11. But it, between verse 5 and verse 11, there are two of those kind of traditional sin lists that you expect from Paul. Um, and they're groups of five. Um, the first sin list um, is a whole bunch of sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which Paul explains as idolatry. idolatry. Now, what's interesting is he says, look, kill those sins, and he uses the language of kill, put to death, Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, right, these forces that drive you away from God. And it's weird for him to go from sexual immorality to greed. Though I guess money, sex, and power is often an issue. But I think the thought line that Paul is following is um, essentially all sexual immorality, whether it's sex outside marriage, the ways that you use your mind, or the evil desires which drive you, is essentially a wanting what's not yours. Right? When you have an affair, you're wanting somebody who does not belong to you. When you use them in a fantasy or pornography, you're objectifying them and turning them into a thing. And what he says is all of those uh, um, sexual sins that you experience really dehumanize the other person and turn them into a commodity that uh, you buy, sell, or um, use. In fact, our language about the sexual act has changed over time, hasn't it? So it used to be in the scriptures, it was to know. Uh, to reveal yourself and to know somebody else deeply and thoroughly. And now it's been reduced to just um, a transaction, right? We talk about friends with benefits, like it's something that comes with your job. Um, you actually just make love like it's a product. Or you might ask casually, um, if you're a younger student, did you get some? Like it's a thing that comes, right? You see how it's been reduced from a relationship just to a commodity that actually expresses the greed that Paul's talking about. He says, avoid those things that dehumanize people and turn them into things. And it's important to figure out where Paul's going because it will make patience make sense later. The second list that he talks about are um, emotional and verbal sins. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. And what's interesting about all of those, of course, is the way that they kill and dehumanize people, right? Was Jesus says, if you have angry words and rage against somebody, it's like you've murdered them. And we all know that in the ways that we speak of each other, even if we don't physically murder them, we can take great delight in emotionally uh, murdering them or intellectually murdering them. It's those little wounds, those little stabs, jabs, and pokes. Um, and what Paul's objecting to there is the filthy language which dehumanizes, which slaughters the image of God in other people. Richard Mao, who used to be the president at Fuller Seminary, uh, grew up in North Jersey as part of that Dutch Reformed community uh, that's ensconced in that part of the state. And when he was in fifth grade back in the 1950s, long before the civil rights movement had kind of tried to reform the ways that we think about race, he and one of the black students in the neighborhood got into an altercation. Um, the black student uh, evidently in the midst of the altercation threw a stone at uh, uh, Richard Mao and Rich responded by using the N-word. Well, uh, the principal at Richard Mao's elementary school was a good Dutch reform man. It was a good Dutch reformed private school. He called Richard into the classroom or into his office and began to berate him. And uh, Richard Mao said, but he threw a stone at me. And the principal said, I think with a lot of insight, he said, that's fine. He tried to wound his body, but you tried to wound his soul. And that's 
completely unacceptable. And so uh, the punitive assignment the principal loved to give to students in those years was to write lines, to stand in front of the chalkboard and to write out however many times the principal told you to whatever lines he assigned. And his favorite lines usually came from the Ten Commandments. And so Richard Mao set a record for lines that evidently nobody had ever set before and had never set again. The record still stands. A um, hundred times he was asked to write on the chalkboard, thou shalt not kill. And um, the principal said, you tried to kill that boy with your words. And if we take the Sermon Mount seriously, Richard, that's just as damaging to him as that stone may have been to you. And then I think with a lot of insight, the um, principal also said, I want you to write a second line, thou shalt not steal. Because not only did you try to kill that child with words, you tried to rob him of his dignity, and God will not stand for that. Right? Paul is being very clear. Anger, malice, always leads to these kind of, this kind of damp, human, dehumanizing language. You steal God-given dig, God dignity from people, and you wound them in the process. So it's from there that we begin to look at verse 11. And Paul says, look, here there is no Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This third list has five values that Paul's getting at, just like the five sets of sins that he's talked about before. He's um, being pretty intentional and parallel there. And you'll notice it's a community-enhancing, people-dignifying list of virtues that he wants them to put on. And when Paul's talking about patience both here and in the fruit of the Spirit, he's not just saying, you know, um, just take a deep breath. Let it go. Relax. Stop rushing around. He's in particularly talking about forbearing, forbearance. Um, not just putting up with, like, we have to get there, which is obviously my problem, because uh, even as I'm preaching on patience, I was really impatient this morning trying to get my kids moving. Um, but what he's talking about really are when the other person is really just a burden, when they're a drain on you, when, they, when everything about them fundamentally irritates you, what should you do? Right? This isn't, we're going to be late. This is, you are a burden in my life. Like, I look at you and my spirit droops, my face falls, and I just think, how long, oh Lord? <laughs> and that's what Paul's looking at. And what I want you to notice is um, in this list of virtues that Paul has here, which is very similar to the fruits of the spirit, the last virtue Paul mentions is patience. And if you noticed with the other sets of vices that he wanted you to avoid, the last one kind of defined the experience of all the rest. So you have sexual immorality, blah, 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 greed, because all of those are stealing in some way. And then you have anger, malice, all the way to um, uh, you know, foul language, because um, in the end, the murder in our heart is always expressed by our words, right? And so why does it end with patience? I want to suggest that patience is the long-term expression of those other four values. <clears throat> patience means uh, living a life of compassion in a consistent way, where you have compassion for somebody else's life situation um, and understand it deeply enough that you begin to understand some of their flaws and some of their pains and some of the ways that God is and si the situations of life have shaped them. 
and you ask God for mercy in order to actually experience, uh, understand that, right? It's not just compassion, but patience is the long-term expression of kindness, being good to somebody when they don't deserve it. So understanding doesn't make everything better, right? There, that used to be a truism, like if you just walk a mile in their shoes, sometimes you think, I, walked a, I could walk a mile in their shoes and they'd still be irritating people. <laughs> and so Paul says, put on kindness because um, I'm asking you to do something which isn't deserved, right? To extend goodness to someone. Um, to put on humility, because not only do you need to understand where a person has come from, and sometimes in spite of where they've come from, you extend kindness, but um, humility is recognizing your own flaws. It's recognizing that maybe your time in life aren't as valuable as you would like to think they are from the perspective of God. But in fact, the most dignifying, glorious thing you could do would be to embrace this person. And I don't, and maybe God is saying, I don't necessarily have a higher calling for you because it's in the context of this relationship, in the context of this community, that I'm going to shape you into Christ-likeness. Can you trust me for the situation I put, yourself, put you in? Because it's not like you have somewhere else to go until I get, decide to put you there. It's not just compassion or kindness or even humility in recognizing maybe pride is part of what, we, what so irritates us about that person. It's gentleness, right? It's the long-term expression of restraining our aggression, choosing not um, to oppress, but instead to be gracious. Patience sums all of those up and says, not just once, not just over the course of a week, but as our unfinished story said, over the course of years, demonstrating what it means to be compassionate and kind, humble and gentle, even when the person isn't interested in change. Right? Patience is required because of the context of who the church is. If you look in verse 11, Paul has found the most disparate way of describing the people who are gathered in that body because Paul's not saying be patient necessarily to the people outside the church. He's looking at the church, this church that's rent with conflict, which is true at Colossians at the time. And he goes, you all, could you just be patient with one another? Because you're Jew and Greek. You, you, half of you think the other half is unclean and can't worship God. The other half of you describes the other half as crazy, superstitious goofballs. And together you are the body of Christ. Some of you are Greek. You think you're the smartest, most brilliant, cultured people in the world. And the other half of the church is filled with people you used to describe as barbarians because they babble all the time. They seem unkempt and unwashed to you. And he goes, you're brother and sister. You're going to spend eternity together. You should practice now. Right? You're slave and free. You're in these bizarre economic relationships where there's clear power differentials, class differentials, and um, <clears throat> right, freedom differentials where some of you own the other person. And he says, can you be patient with one another? Because you are all slaves to Christ and belong to him. What does it look like to gather this desperately different group of people together? He goes, of course you irritate one another. There's nothing else that could possibly draw you together except that Christ is in all and is all. If it weren't for Jesus Christ, there's no reason this body should exist. But if you've died with Christ, if you've been raised with him, if you're reigning with him, and if you'll be revealed with him, then really you could extend patience to one another. You all have been forgiven sins before. So forgive, he says, 
as an act of patience with one another. You all know that you have not yet been transformed fully in Christ-likeness, so be patient with the other person who similarly has not yet been transformed. You stand at the right hand of Christ. If they really bother you, pray for them, intercede for them before the Father, just as undoubtedly they're interceding about you right now. And then trust that one day if Christ comes again and will reveal himself, right, in all glory and splendor and will reveal us as the perfect children of God, that one day they will not be so irritating because they will be made perfect. And the great thing is you will not irritate them nearly as much either because you will be made perfect as well. So wait for it, even as we wait for Christ. Um, patience in part. Is, being, is living out the reality of bearing with one another and forgiving one another, which is what Paul's getting at, right, in uh, verses 13 and 14. And what I love is Paul's realism. Because he just assumes that in the church, we're going to have to have patience for one another. He doesn't go, oh, the church, it's so glorious. We gather in unity together. We sing perfectly in harmony. We live perfectly in harmony together. There's no disagreement. I mean, the beauty of scripture, in part why I'm a follower of Jesus, is it's so clear how clearly the people of God fail, right? You're barely days out of Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes with power at Pentecost before the church is beginning to fight with itself in Acts 6, and we've already had issues in Acts 3 and 4, right? I mean, consistently the church is realistic about who it is. And Paul says, look, the only way a group of you is ever going to survive together is be patient with one another. And you're just going to have to forgive one another, he says, which is the ultimate act of patience, isn't it? Forgiveness actually is saying, I will trust if there's anything that needs to be rectified, God will rectify it in his own time. And I'm going to be patient with you as you work toward Christ-likeness, trusting that you're in process. And that I can wait to make everything right right now. Patience invites us to live Christ's story with us, right? Um, and if you do, if you live his death, his resurrection, his reign, and his return, then you realize also, um, if we live Christ's story, then we're going to be patient like Christ is patient because he's love. And that's why Paul says, bind all these things together in love, which is perfect. When you shape your life around the story, then in word and deed, you begin to manifest the fruits of the spirit because you look more and more like Jesus. You resemble the one who reveals what God is like to us. The other reason I've been thinking a lot about the fruits of the Spirit recently was um, over spring break, my family went to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a quick little uh, jaunt with my kids and my parents. And we had one free day that we hadn't planned very well. And it was kind of the death tour of D.C. I don't know if any of you have done that. Like, we went to death memorial after death memorial. Like, we saw, you know, we went to the Lincoln Memorial. We went to um, the Jefferson Memorial. We saw Washington's tomb. It was like, and my daughter, uh, Madeline, the older one, was like, I want to go to the Ford's Theater and see where Lincoln was shot. She's been reading biographies of the presidents. And she, her big thing was like, I hope they change the chair. <laughs> like, don't worry, the chair's been cleaned and changed. Um, but we had one free day, and we asked Madeline, so what do you want to do on the free day? And she said, I want to go back to the Holocaust Museum. Um, we'd only taken like a 40-minute excursion through the children's part, but she wanted to see the entire Holocaust Museum. And I have to say, um, I invite all of you to go. It, it's a spiritual pilgrimage to actually walk through because it's um, dramatic, it's painful, it's um, gut-wrenching. Uh, it's filled with stories and videos of Holocaust survivors. Um, there was an entire exhibit in the basement on the people who just stood by quietly and did nothing 
or there was one video I remember, it was a woman, she said, you know, I remember um, an, for a week, my best friend and I stayed up all night, we were studying for our tests, we ate chocolate, we laughed, we talked, right, we worked really hard on this test, and then three days after the test, she turned me into um, the Nazis, right, I mean, just story after story like that. So um, as we were going through, um, we were explaining who Hitler was to our daughter. She had been reading the diary of Anne Frank, a little you know, kind of children's biography of her. So she was, how did Hitler come to power? And we were talking about that. And you see, you'd see videos of Hitler giving speeches uh, at the museum. And so as we were driving home, um, my wife and I had been saying to Madeline, you know, um, one day, Amado, somebody might ask you to do something that's evil. That's just bad. And you need to be able to learn to say no. Right, because so much of the Holocaust exhibit was about people who didn't say no, who just, I followed orders, or that's what everybody was doing. And so we kept telling her, you know, when you hear people invent you to bad things, one day God's giving me an opportunity to say no. And as we're driving, she asked a question, she goes, but mom, mommy and daddy, um, how will I know if they're asking me to do something bad? Because they might be speaking in German. Madeline's five, so this is a really practical question, right? Her mind worked, like, as five-year-olds think very practically, so the problem is if Hitler came back, he'd be speaking German. I won't know if he's doing something bad or not. And I'm driving, kind of hoping my wife's going to say something. My wife is a little silent. We're like, you know, how do you answer a five-year-old's question like that without laughing? And thankfully, she and I had been talking about the fruits of the Spirit um, as we've been praying in the morning. And so... Kind of I was praying like, Jesus, I need to answer. I, I don't know, if Hitler's speaking German to her, what should she do? And, um, and I thought about the fruits of the Spirit. I said, Manu, did you see any of the fruits of the Spirit in Hitler's speeches? Love or joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or self-control. Did you see any of those things? And she said, no. And I said, well, that's how you're going to know, even if you don't understand what they're saying. Right? If you don't see the fruits of the Spirit in how they're saying it, you don't have to understand what they're saying. You'll know whether they're good or bad by whether they manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Because whether the fruits manifest or not will be a demonstration of what's going on in their heart. So just look for the fruits of the Spirit, even if they're speaking German to you. And I think you'll be okay. And in part, right, when your story is shaped around the story of Jesus Christ, Inevitably, you begin to bear the fruit of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit, then, is patience. As people who've received the patience of God, we extend the patience of God. So, you know, a testimony of an eight-year relationship that still doesn't have resolution is no surprise to God. The only surprise to God may be that we could be so impatient when we've received so much patience ourselves. So as we wait for Jesus, as we long for him, as we invite him to return... It's a continual reminder to be, wait, to wait well, and to be patient. Let me pray for us, then invite the worship team to come back up. Lord, I confess I am super impatient with lots of things because I'm super type A, and I am always behind, and um, I reduce people to either barriers to getting things done or th people I need to do things so I can get my stuff done. And that's just the small way I experience impatience. The great larger one um, is I confess it's easy to either write people off when I don't think they change fast, change fast enough, uh, or to bear people um, with poor grace. Instead, Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends here at CBC. May we look more like Jesus day by day so that we'd have the patience of Jesus. 
um, in his patients extended to us and in his patients in declining to return now so that more people could re respond to him in faith, hope, and love. May we look more like you, God, so the world would know, regardless of our words, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.